Welcome to Bestech, uh, the public procurement podcast. Today, we're talking about development aid and procurement, as well as becoming a leader. I have a chance to sit today with Professor Anna Maria Lachimia um, and join us. Have a listen. Welcome to Bestech, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andov discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestech. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hello, dear listeners. Um, I am once more left to my own devices as my uh, beloved co-host, unfortunately got sick, but I am joined by a fantastic company uh, of dear colleague, uh, what a trailblazer is joining us today. Um, As um, already indicated in the intro, I'm interviewing today Professor Anna Maria Lachimia, who does not really need introduction in the environment of procurement, academia and um, development aid and procurement. But in case if you're hearing that name for the first time, let me just give you a couple, very few of bullet points on Anna um, that does not do her justice, to to be fair. Uh, But Anna is currently a director of the Public Procurement Research Group at the Nottingham University, which is undoubtedly a world-leading center um, of research and teaching in public procurement law and policy area. She's also a research fellow at Stellenbosch University uh, and a member of steering committee of the International Economic Law Collective. But Anna's work goes outside of university uh, walls um, to the practice and also really to the community uh, that really needs um, her help. And that um, is the work with World Bank, various governmental organizations and NGOs on topics steering from uh, gender and procurement, development aid and procurement, food procurement, and so on and so many more. But also what I'm particularly excited about is to talk today with a woman that I have been looking up to for some years right now. In her organizational capacity, Anna also is school equity officer and a co-director of Equality and Diversity Program. So all those topics which also are very dear my heart. So we have a chance today to uh, chat and really learn a little bit more um, from someone that has been doing so much. So without further ado, Anna, welcome to the stack. Marta, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for the lovely introduction. Um, a big uh, hello to Willem as well, who I'm sure will be listening to us and is missed today. Uh, I'm a fan of the podcast, so I'm really honored to have been invited to join you. Thanks so much. We were looking forward to having this chat, undoubtedly. Um, And as you uh, mentioned, you had a chance to listen to our podcast before, so you know how uh, the story goes. We will start with a brief uh, entree today in which I would want to really um, give you a space to share with us a little bit. How did you end up in your career where you are right (laughs) now? 
Um, and on our main, we will dive a little bit into specifically the development aid and procurement, one of the areas that you've been uh, working extensively on. And then when we come to dessert, a little bit on leadership, what it means to become a leader, what it means to be a leader. Um, and I might pick your brain on some advices on how to how to progress in the career. But let's start with the entrance. So Anna, um, from my research and obviously our talks um, over the last years, I know that the your career spans through several countries, several different organizations, public and, and intergovernmental ones. And you've been associated, to my understanding, preliminary over the years with the University of Nottingham. Tell us a little bit how that all came around. Yes, so um, I, I came into procurement absolutely by chance um, as a, I don't know I think most people at first I was a practicing lawyer in Italy um, and I was practicing in front of the appeal court and the administrative court uh, but I had graduated very very early for Italian standards uh, I completed my full law degree in four years. Now they need five to complete it. So after practicing for a while, I decided that I needed to study a little bit more and take a little bit of a break, which I never did. So I decided to take an LLM uh, abroad and I went to Nottingham. And that's where I came across procurement. Um, it was uh, the very first week when I heard the opening, the presentation days uh, of the module convener uh, for all the LLM options. I heard the Martin Tribus. Uh, yes. He, is, uh, he always does a good impression, doesn't yes, he? Yes, he always does a good impression. And I always say, I say it also in my book, that I did procurement thanks to an inspiring talk by him. <laughs> uh, and that's where it all started. Uh, you know, the first week was the beginning. The first week of my LLM was my introduction to procurement. I did the course. Uh, I did the first semester, then I did the second semester. The, uh, the module was taught by Sue on EU procurement and international trade. And that's when my career started. Then uh, Sue offered me a PhD scholarship uh, to do a PhD. The scholarship was funded by the PPRG and the School of Law. So you can imagine it's a great honor tonight. Now that I act the center where I was yeah. a student, um, and, and for me, it was, you know, I came from Italy, a place where 25 years ago, academia was very different from now. Yeah. I had no female professors uh, in Rome. Yeah. Uh, I had 27 modules, 27 male professors. So it was quite innovative to to come to Nottingham and work with a woman, with a woman yeah. professor who was the leader in her field. And that. Uh, and I, I, I always say, you know, meeting Sue was transformative for me because I learned a lot for her, uh, how to treat students uh, with respect and importance. Uh, and this gives opportunity and, and give op opportunity to people. Um, At that time, when, when you started your career in Nottingham, when Sue Arasmith, that is a name that I don't think that there is anyone in procurement uh, that does not know that name. But at that time, when you were, you know, a young academic that got offered the PhD, did, 
Did it sink in at that time who is offering you the PhD? I had absolutely no idea. Mm. I had absolutely mm. no idea who she was and uh -huh. uh, how important she was. And uh, I remember um, when she offered me the PhD scholarship, uh, I said, oh, I'm not. I, at the time, I really wasn't sure if I wanted mm. to do the PhD. So she was like, but I have lots of people who want this scholarship, so you really have to decide. Yeah. Uh, in my mind, I was like, well, if lots of people want it, then maybe I should take it. <laughs> then it sounds like it's a good idea. It sounds <laughs> like a good idea. But then, of course, you know, this is just a joke, but it, it was more the time topic that motivated me mm. to do it. I was really passionate about it. I did my LLM dissertation on the same topic that then I did my PhD on and um, and in general, the environment uh, that was at Nottingham that is still the same, you know, very international, very open, very friendly, a place that gives opportunities um, to those who, who are worth it in a way and you said yeah. that you spend your career mainly in Nottingham and yes it's true my academic career I never left yeah. um, because it's um, well for procurement you wouldn't want to be anywhere else you know yeah I think uh, that you in, know in the UK especially absolutely but I think you know even if we look a good 10 years ago and I hopefully I, I don't say something that factually is incorrect. But at least on European scale, I would say that, you know, the 10 years ago when I had a chance to um, join at that time, the so it's over 10 years ago, actually, the PhD um, conference in Nottingham. That was, I think, in my mind over the years of my PhD and, and the years that follow, really the only center that was so vividly focusing on procurement. I think that... You know, at that time when I was doing the PhD, it was me and my supervisor in whole university and all who said that time that we're only doing procurement. Um, and, and that continued to be the case right now. If that is in Copenhagen, we have a couple more people or Utrecht became a little bit more um, sort of known for, for also for the law um, group um, and, and the multidisciplinary procurement group. But nothing for many, many years was not only the place, but the only one really that recognized the importance of procurement and really drove the development and research to some extent. So, so as you say, it's, it's, it's for sure um, extremely vibrant place to be. And, and as we finish today, I want to talk also a little bit more about that, how it is to, you know, almost go a full circle from uh, starting your career there to right now uh, leading the group. But let's step away a little bit from the organization, from the procurement law group. Let's talk a little bit more right now. What have been um, taking a lot of time, um, a, a lot of research time um, over the years um, in your life, which is one of only one of the areas, obviously, that you focus on because you did a lot of different things. But um, the reoccurring theme seems to be uh, the development aid and procurement. Would that be a fair statement? Yes, yes, absolutely. This is certainly be um, my, um, my starting point in procurement, how I started, how I developed my research. I 
I've looked at the interaction between procurement and development. So how procurement is used as an instrument of governance in developing countries and where governance is really understood as an essential component of development. And the lessons learned are relevant for all countries. Um, so quickly, I, you know, uh, I'm anticipating in a way the fact that, you know, what we learn within the development context is relevant, not just uh, for developing countries, what is happening in terms of reforms, in terms of uh, new practices. And it's something that all countries should look up to. Uh, because it's important for everyone is uh, is that it goes within that idea of best practices that are being development developed and uh, and so this is how um you know we could consider the term development procurement to be linked and related to everything that all procurement uh, experts do and i started my research looking at how hate money is spent and I was especially interested in the practice of aid tying. So I looked at the contradiction of the international economic framework on the one end, uh, sponsoring free trade and the means for the best allocation of resources, but then on the other, practicing protectionism in a sector such as development aid, where the need for the best allocation of resources is most felt. Now, for those who don't know what tide aid is, because I guess not many are experts, tide aid is a practice whereby donors give aid to recipient countries, but they say you can only buy goods and services in my own country. Uh, so if Italy gives aid to Kenya, it says to Kenya, yes, you can use this money, but you can only spend it via Italian suppliers. And this is a very common practice in development, uh, in the development sectors. Um, now maybe a little bit less than before, but there are still many ways of informal tying. So without explicitly saying so, uh, without explicitly putting a condition of how to spend the money informally, the donor manages to do so by, for example, and we all know how this is done, you know, by drafting very uh, specific, specifications that only certain suppliers will be able to meet or by, uh, you know, having a short tender noticing, not advertising tenders um, and all the rest. Can I just ask, because out of the things that you mentioned right now, two questions come to my mind. Uh, first of them is, is it um, when we're talking about this tide aid and the development aid, do we tend to usually talk about just several countries that this is relevant. What I mean by that is that the donors usually be, you know, a couple of the big economically developed countries that really are interested in, let's say, natural resources in developing part of the world. So do we have continuously, so to speak, the same players or actually it spreads quite across um, also, let's say, um, European countries or would that, the, the one that comes to my mind, whether that would be predominantly, you know, US providing money to, um, let's say, African countries for development and then having that, um, that requirements or is it broader? That would be my one question. And my second question is then, when we're talking about this development aid and tide aid, do the regulatory setup is somehow 
exempted from the rules on the international trading agreement? Is that sort of a little pocket that has its own rules? Because the example that you mentioned, kind of if we look at it from our day-to-day perspective, it's like, well, those are breaches. Sort of, this is sort of a very particular way. So is that meaning that under the circumstances of particular agreements connected with the investment, you can do so? Or, or where we are in those? Okay, so I'll start with the first question. Um, the extent to which is practiced, basically. Um, pretty much all donors do that uh, with different levels and, with, and to a different extent. So at the international level, for example, uh, the US uh, tends to tie all of its food aid. Um, uh, European countries that do it are, you know, many. Italy, for example, there was even a... Um, um, the, the European Commission had even initiated a case against Italy um, but then the case was dropped uh, because Italy showed that it was taking steps uh, to untie its aid. There is now, um, there has been an international agreement uh, on untying aid to least developing countries in 2002, but this agreement was limited to least developing countries only, so it didn't cover all the developing countries that still receive aid. But uh, this agreement was done within the species of the OECD, so only OECD countries were members of it, uh, OECD DAC countries. There is now a second review taking place to see where we are at, and there have been many reviews since, uh, all these reviews showing that despite the commitment to untying aid, in practice, tied aid continues still to be practiced by most donors, by Canada, by the US, by China. China is not even members of this agreement. So you very often see when you go in developing countries, lots of projects that are being financed uh, by China and they are being carried out by Chinese companies. Uh, and this is a very common phenomenon in developing countries. But China is not part of any of the international initiatives uh, that have been aimed at uh, and that have tried to ban tide aid. So there have been many soft law initiatives. Um, I've already mentioned the OECD recommendation, but there have been many others like the Paris Agreement uh, and uh, all the aid effectiveness uh, initiatives since then, uh, since the Paris Agreement. Um, from a legal point of view, um, so to, to go, to move to your second question, the, the legal aspects of today, that's where my PhD is focused on and what I did for the PhD. So I looked at whether this practice was compatible with the European rules. And so when it is practiced by European donors and whether it is compatible with uh, international laws such as the WTO rules and the GPA rules. So I looked at both. And uh, at the European level, what you notice is that uh, for a start, for a long time, there has been confusion as to what type of rules apply to development procurement and whether countries, uh, member states should apply the EU directives or not. 
So, for example, the UK at the time of my PhD was still member of um, Europe and the UK used to apply the European directives. And at the time, the UK was very much pro-anti-aid, so it was very much for the liberalization of the aid sector, of the aid procurement sector. But this contrasted, for example, with the case of Italy, where instead there was no real clarity as to what rules had to be applied. And um, Italy, for example, employs a very peculiar technique. That, um, so they select the project, Italy selects the project, Italy selects uh, um, the country, the goods to be purchased, uh, but delegates the procurement to a procurement agency that purchases from Italy and carries out the purchasing from Italy. However, the procurement entity purchases on behalf of the recipient countries. So contracts are awarded on behalf of the recipient countries. Before the award, Italy has to approve the procedure and the award. So it's all very interesting. Italy keeps full control of the aid process, but the formal award is made on behalf of the recipient country. So what rules to apply? So to cut a very long story short, I say that the rules that apply are still the European Union rules because we should look at case law of the European Union, such as of the Court of Justice, such as the Open Sky case, so case 47698 of the ECJ. Uh, in that case, uh, the case concerned an agreement between uh, uh, Germany and the United States, whereby the United States committed to grant preferences to German companies. And Germany, of course, claimed, oh, well, you can't apply, it's not, it's not us giving the preferences because it's the US actually giving the preference, which is a very similar case as to what happens in today. Well, the ECJ said, no, we look at the, at the, at the real, uh, what lies behind the agreement, behind the agreement, uh, be, behind the preference lies an agreement between Germany and the US. So the preference is given just because there is this agreement. So the ECJ was always taking a very um, uh, practical approach and substantive approach, looking at substance rather than form, has said that the agreement was breaching the European rules. So I argue, and I'm, I make a very extensive case uh, in my book and where I argue why this case should be applied to TIDATE as well. Um, so in my view, uh, this practice and this way of conducting the purchase, it's, uh, it's breaching um, European rules. But besides the fact that it breaches European rules, for me, the real problem is that this way of granting aid and of financing developing countries' budget, because that's at the end is the project. The problem means that developing countries cannot use the money to pursue goals that nowadays we call strategic goals, like protecting SMEs or um, protecting communities, using procurement for what we would expect nowadays procurement to be used for, um, those even, social and environmental goals that we want to pursue. Absolutely, because one of the things that automatically struck me, because um, ever so slightly diverging, we both 
have been working also in some aspects of food procurement, right? Yeah. And when you mentioning this food aid um, example earlier on uh, about the United States sort of tying uh, tying its suppliers to food aid, that's that's I think a, a very clear example where most presumably you're thinking, well, but that's not very sustainable, right? Food is one of those things that you most presumably want to have in a certain vicinity and local locality due to if that is its freshness, if that is also purely if you're thinking about climate, right? Transporting food and yep. so on and so forth. So so that goes straight away in it, into it. But I also think um, a type of conflict of interest potentially, if also sort of, so to speak, arise here in, in some of those cases, because you... You're providing the aid, but at the same time, you really, as you as you so eloquently elaborate on, you're tying it onto specific circumstances, which means that you don't have really uh, much a discretion as the receiver to figuring out how you actually want to spend that money. Is that is that a fair observation? Yes, absolutely. And uh, one of the consequences of tying aid uh, in terms of uh, development negative effects that it has is that distorts completely the nature of the aid because you don't end up giving what the recipient needs but you give what you have uh, and what you as a donor know that would be beneficial for your own company so there is a great conflict of interest and this is really very much a, a bigger problem within the aid sector and this is, after all, how aid started. If we think about uh, uh, food aid, food aid started as a means of disposing of surplus production in the U.S. You know, so they were producing more, and what they decided to do was to give this more to developing countries. And the case of food aid is... Um, is interesting and tragic um, at the same time because with food aid uh, you have a series of problems linked to the fact that, for example, transportation takes so long that sometimes the food arrives rotten and there have been many studies about it by the U.S. as well. Um, but they, you know, the agricultural lobby is so strong uh, that it's very difficult to, to agree any legislation to untie food aid. And there have been many attempts made in the U.S. Um, now things are getting a little bit better, but still a, a very high percentage of food aid is given tied by the U.S., not but by the European Union. I have to say the European Union has committed to, uh, to untying completely food aid. But, you know, the, Europe does other things. You, Europe does internal subsidies uh, to its farmers. So there is, you know, I think whichever region we take, there are some things that we can learn some good things and, 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 and things that we are all to replicate and some things that you kind of look at it and saying, well, really? But I think it's also depending from the perspective, right? Um, it's always depending from the perspective that we take. And I guess our role is to try to be as objective as we can in the assessment of those things, right, as academics. And I think that if you're a governmental representative or someone that writes policies or creates those things, you might have a different aim and goal, right, behind it. So so that's probably also tricky. Um, I wanted to ask you, Anna, here in context of legal enforcement of, of all these elements, who sues who on what basis? Like how that works? Is that looking quite similar as 
Uh, and you know, that might be me just exposing uh, my lack of of knowledge here. But will that be still the same situation that you just have disregarded uh, bitter in the procedure somehow um, suing? Because from the sound of it, you don't really have even such an open competition. Usually from the sound of it, you would have the competitors from specific country already, right? So you won't yeah. have this sort of more international or what we perceive the European sort of issues of open competition. Yes, there are, uh, for a start, there are very few cases because uh, the market is limited, the sector is uh, more limited. There have been some attempts um, in the Italian court, courts, for example, there have been attempts to um so uh, to challenge one of the decision that was being made in relation to um development aid procurement but the supreme court said that they didn't have legal standing because the contract was uh, agreed on behalf of uh, uh, the recipient countries so the forum for adjudication should have been the recipient countries forum now of course there are different uh, challenges with that if you think about it because uh, to, to challenge a case in a different country you need to know the system well in that country so the cost might be um, not worth it. So in the reduced challenge and the reduced review by supplier, we know what this might lead to and what problems this might rise give rise to. Now, the, the real mistake done in that Italian case was that actually they should have asked for a referral to the uh, uh, European Court European of Justice, of Justice mm. uh, to see whether that would have been really interesting, but that unfortunately didn't happen. So this is for bilateral aid and for bilateral donors. With multilateral banks, uh, each bank has got its own review system, so procedures can be challenged when it comes to how the aid money is spent, but you know, each bank has got its own, uh, its own system and its own procedure. It, uh, one issue that, for example, has been um, uh, discussed in UK courts uh, in relation to development aid is whether um, third uh, actors such as NGOs have local standards to challenge the decision. And in one of um, one of the leading cases uh, related to development in the UK is a case called the World Development Movement case, uh, where uh, the World Development Movement was given legal stance to stand in front of the court and challenge uh, the decision. And that was in relation to a dump that was being built um, by uh, the Department for International Cooperation. So that was uh, a first case where legal standards was given to uh, an international NGO in, in the World Development Movement um, linked to development aid. And from that case, then there was a review of UK aid. So, you know, you can see how problematic it is the cases are not actually reviewed because then you know, a lot of good things can happen when there is a review and there is more accountability. So that's a problem. From an international point of view, uh, development aid is exempt from the rules of the GPA. So it's excluded from the coverage of the GPA via various provisions. The, the old version of the GPA had a little footnote to Article 1 
that exclude the development aid. Now there is a, a bigger provision uh, in Article 3, I think, of the GPA that excludes development aid uh, procurement from the coverage of the GPA. So development procurement is essentially excluded uh, it's, it's from this international of, yeah. agreement. Um, so it's more a matter of soft law engagement. Mm. Okay, so to sort of try to um, summarize what we discussed, if I could ask you, Anna, if you could give me a type of three bullet points of where you see the main challenges lies within the area of development and procurement and what you're hoping, uh, what could be happening in upcoming years, how we could improve it. Just, you know, to give you an example, it's, it's, it sounds like the standing um, you, I think, mentioned in, in both of the cases, um, standing is, is a bit of a problem, right? So how we can improve um, the, the area? So if you could give me four challenges and improvements about, you know, two, three bullet points, what do you think? I think that improving transparency would be mm-hmm. really good of all development aid tenders. Um, so there are new methods were like the open contracting partnership methods and uh, the publication of open data standards. I think that would be really good if this could be applied uh, to development aid procurement in full, regardless of uh, whether it's a multilateral donor or a bilateral donor. I think we need more information. Uh, we need information, and this is something that I really have been advocated for in my book as well. We need information not just on the award of the tender, but on who participates to the tender. Because only by understanding who participates to the tender, we can see where the weaknesses lie. Mm. Possibly we should seek gender disaggregated data to understand whether aid projects support uh, gender equality and how they affect gender equality. Uh, We should try to encourage uh, more dialogue and discourse within donors such as China. And um, something else that I've advocated strongly in my writings on Tide Aid has been trying to make sure that development aid is not um, sidelined within discourse of international uh, procurement law and within the agreement on international procurement. Because if we have new members and if we expand memberships uh, to developing countries and we need to make sure that they have something to gain and that this membership means that no one will ever uh, tie aid anymore or use aid for their own interest only. So opening up trade, should, should we should remove this sort of contradiction when we talk about international trade. Um, so these, I would say, are the three big mm-hmm. points. Um yeah, and I, no, I, I haven't sounds... thought about this for a very long time. So <laughs> thank you for making me think again about uh, Tide Aid. I know that there is now a second review of mm-hmm. uh, um, the untying aid uh, process within the OECD. So I hope they are listening and take on board uh, the recommendation. Taking notes. Absolutely. <laughs> Taking notes of the recommendation. <laughs> um, 
lovely. I, I really appreciate your thoughts because as, as we started to chat a little bit before we started recording, this is sort of area that I think um, not so many of us had a chance to really interact. So learning a little bit more about it and such also important because uh, the effect, the impact that you really have through this type of um, agreements um, and, and, and procurement are, are quite huge. So thank you for sharing your thoughts about um, this with us. And I think that with this, um, we can conclude the main substantive uh, part for, for the podcast episode today on the um, development aid, tide aid and, and public procurement. Um, the Oh, Anna, maybe... One more no, thought? <laughs> yes, no, maybe one Go more thought uh, yes, please. was um, more the fact that I, I just wanted to say that, you know, we have focused a lot on Tide Aid, but there is a, a lot more in the field of development aid that uh, one could look at. And for example, the role that development banks have in terms of uh, encouraging reforms in developing countries and supporting uh, reforms in developing countries and this is an area that I have explored as well throughout my research after the book on Tide Aid this is where my research has moved to and I think that there is really a lot that is going on at the moment at the international level mm. especially when we look at um, process such as the MAPS review, for example, for reviewing developing countries uh, and developed countries process but also and I think this is linked to what you were saying in terms of why it is important for those who don't do development in general well nowadays we talk about the sustainable development goals so much and because the sustainable development goals now apply to developed and developing countries but before that there were the millennium development goals mm. um, so Opening up um, a door to development means also recognizing all these different aspects, interacting with different disciplines and uh, interacting with other methodologies as well. Mm. Uh, and I think that this has probably been the most interesting part of uh, doing development procurement for me. Mm. Yeah, that's a very that's a very important element to undoubtedly add. What, of course, we would do is that when we finishing our recording, I will ask Anna to share some links and some references to some of her work that we will obviously include in the description of the episode. So we obviously very much encourage any of our listeners that might have interest in in deepening their knowledge around that area. Go to our website, check um, check Anna's work, and, and and get the book also, of course. Oh no! Um, and um, yeah, and let's move on because time is running out, and this is the, the the dessert for today is actually something that I really was looking forward because there are maybe two aspects that I wanted to. Um, preface our conversation. So for the dessert, I asked Anna whether she would be so kind to talk to me today um, a little bit about becoming a leader, a leadership position in academia, which in itself, it's 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 quite specific type of leadership um, if you compare it with managerial role with, uh, within company, let's say. Um, but the reason why I particularly wanted to talk to Anna about it or that was one of the first questions that came to my mind when when we were setting this this um, podcast is twofold. One is that 
for someone like myself, and I will make it a little bit about me, so I hope that our listeners could forgive me, but I'm also hoping that some of our listeners, um, particularly some of the PhDs that we know that listens and we're very grateful for, um, might find themselves in a similar situation as we're describing. And that is what it means to do a career in legal academia in a country that you're not from. So, you know, that in itself is a, is a, is a different type of also uh, challenge um, and how you thrive in, 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 in such an environment that Anna, both with um, achievement of her professorship, of course, and different leadership role um, is, is, I think, a good person to talk about. And the second um, is more anecdote that, that I wanted to share with you, Anna, because I have a very vivid memory of last time seeing you on a big stage and that was uh, your um, a global revolution conference, the last one. And, oh and it's, a, it's a starting of, the, of, of that event um, and you heading it and at the very beginning, um, slides don't work, some technical things don't work. And I just remember sitting there and just sweating through my palms and I just was looking at you and I was in full awe of the fact that, you know, I don't know what it comes to organizing that scale of event, but I have some understanding what it means to organize a larger scale event and how much work it goes to it and how much, you know, you kind of invest in that. But you just showed so much grace and um, just, you know, like how eased you came into that podium and how much you sort of made all of us also at ease that that thing doesn't work, but we let go of it. We still are here. And, 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 you know, I think that that also speaks um, a bit to the leadership role, how, how you also know in which moments to let go in which moments to really, you know, <laughs> tense about different things. So this is a very long, uh, obviously introduction to the chat that I wanted to have with you. Uh, but I wanted to mention all that, why I think it would be great to hear from you. Um, so Anna, what it means to lead um, such a, you know, well-respected um, procurement law group, how the path of your leadership over the years, you know, culminating with that newest role uh, was, what advice you would give to us that maybe on different stage of career, but kind of maybe aim at some point to to be able to do something of a similar nature? Oh, well, well, thank you, Marta. That's a, that's a lot to take on. And, uh, and you brought <laughs> me back to that moment on that stage. <laughs> then I still remember, I remember, I was uh, crying and laughing inside. Uh, it was, uh, you know, the first conference after, uh, the first conference after COVID, I think the center wasn't 100% uh, 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 ready uh, to to stop PowerPoints. It was hilarious and uh, terrible at the same time. <laughs> but you know, uh, yeah. But then I I think you know when when it comes to crisis, what can you do? Uh, your attitude, um, I think, sets the mood. As you said, if I started mm. uh, screaming and uh, getting upset uh, against uh, the PowerPoint, so why it wasn't working? I it would have ruined it for everyone. So I just. Um, Yes, so I just uh, continued and laughed, uh, and we all uh, were, and and it was a very understanding public. So I was mm. lucky because I was uh, 
it's a big conference, but somehow everybody is so friendly and uh, and and you feel you are amongst friends. So uh, to many extent, this has uh, has made it easy uh, for me uh, at that time. Um, so how it is? It's it's certainly a lot of work, yeah. uh, but it's also a great honor. Uh, it's a great no- honor to to follow in the footsteps of someone who has done so much for the community, and uh, is a big responsibility. It certainly feels like that. Um, I came to the role um, while we were under COVID. Um, at the aftermath of uh, Brexit, um, and for me, Brexit was a big challenge as an academic, as a as a person, because of course I'm European. Um, so, so Brexit was a big um, uh, setback, um, a big shock, um, but also in a way I saw even more the importance of uh, uh, making. Uh, the PPRG and uh, academia in general, you know, a bridge to Europe. So that for me became my objective as the new director of the PPRG, making sure that Brexit does not mean we distance ourselves from Europe and from our European friends. And if anything, I believe my my main objective has been to create links even closer to Europe and with groups that weren't first associated with us. So so that has been my objective from the very beginning. Um, and I think yes, uh, we we provide a forum, a platform for sharing best practices for understanding what happens in the rest of the world. Um, and I take this quite seriously, this as a responsibility, and we we can discuss whether, um, you know, Brexit has meant, as you know, for the UK, new procurement rules for the UK, and we can discuss whether they are better or worse, whether we needed Brexit or not to have these new rules. But one thing that we cannot deny is that Brexit means being out of everything else that surrounds procurement practices and innovation within the EU. And this is for me is the real loss for the UK. So all the initiatives undertaken by the European Commission, by DG Growth, for example, the specific funds and the collaboration events that happen at the European level, such as the Big Buyers Initiative, Initiatives and all the other initiatives in terms of innovation, sustainable procurement, green procurement, the UK is now out of them. But the PPRG can be that bridge, can be the bridge for continuing to see what happens in Europe and how we can share our best practices with Europeans and how Europeans can can share their best practices with us. And mm. uh, do you think that um, if you look at the university, and I'm being a little bit um, 
sort of naughty here. I'm just trying to find a good uh, adjective. But do you think that that's sort of an easy message uh, within the current climate, if that is of the university or the community that is local to you, that openness or whether that also comes with certain, you know, challenges or not everyone kind of is broadly on? Do you need to make a case? Do you feel like you need to make a case that we shouldn't be just focusing, for example, on the UK research and UK education and let's say broader Commonwealth, but it's important for us to still uh, build those relationships? Or do you think that that's broadly within the procurement community that has been developed over the decades in in uh, in Nottingham and through public procurement or group? Is that kind of given? I think that uh, within the university, this feeling of openness has mm. remained uh, very much so. Actually, I have to say Nottingham is intensifying its links with other uni- Euro- uh, European universities and with other uni- universities around the world. I think that feeling of um, wanting to be connected within an openness within the university has certainly remained. Um, within practice for the UK community, I think at the moment a thought taken by the novelty of the bill, of uh, the act actually, the Procurement Act, because the bill has just been approved by Parliament and um, so it's just been enacted. At the moment, I think that the practice in communities taken by the novelty of the bill and it's our duty to remind them that a bill is just, um, that an act, uh, leg- uh, legislation is nothing if it's not well implemented. And to implement something well, we can learn from others, even if they have other rules that are slightly different from ours. Uh, knowing about best practices remains important. So this is a message that I hope uh, with the last procurement uh, global revolution conference and with the next that we can give to everybody in the UK. But also at the same time, I hope that European officials can see the developments that are happening in the UK as something uh, not to dismiss because mm-hmm. so you, uh, the UK is out of Europe uh, and so we dismiss them. But let's be grown up about it and let's see if there is something interesting uh, that can be taken as an inspiration for possible reforms of the EU. So I'm hoping that there will be this sort of maturity Mm. Uh, from other countries as well, um, you know, because so, what has happened has happened. The PPRG as a group, we are very open, we are very European, we come from all over the world. If I could, <laughs> I would reverse <laughs> Brexit, but I sure. can't. So let's, no, let's to, make absolutely. the most... Which is, very much, yeah, which is very much this um, British sense of, okay, let's be practical about it, no? No, and I think that 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 it uh, speaks back to your point about building bridges, right? Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, Anna, what are some of your thoughts, reflections, or maybe advice that you would give to yourself just before taking, you know, this um, director role um, after being in that role for some time right now, uh, and and mainly what 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 I wonder, you know, how you enter this space. And how you carry through, on the one hand side, you know, upkeeping the work that has been done and paying homage to a certain extent to all the people that contribute to that, to the previous leaders. 
Um, and how at the same time you kind of build your, you know, the, the vision for the center for the years to come. How you, in other words, how you keep the bridge to the past, but how you build the bridge forward, how you making something, you know, more your own and so on. Because I think that whenever I think about this type of um, elements, you know, when you working with various people on collaborative also project, at some point when you want to make, not necessarily your own way, but when you have a position to lead, you learn something in the past and you also have some ideas how you would want to change things, right? Yeah. How it's sort of playing that role, because I feel like it's quite, you know, delicate, right? How you, how you manage it. Yeah, it's very delicate because, you know, when you start something from scratch, uh, you have all the challenges of starting from scratch, but you, you start the way you want it. And uh, there is no previous reference point. Um, when you are taking something from uh, that has already been there, you inevitably We'll always hear, oh, but we've always done this. So we'll yeah, always done it. Yeah. So you have to graciously try to yeah. say, oh, well, but now we're doing this way. Um, but I think the most important thing, and that's an advice that I give to myself and to others, and I try to remember all the time, is to listen and engage with everybody. You know, try to involve everybody and then... Um, and then own your own decision, you know, try to identify what it is that you didn't like in the past and what you thought could have been uh, strengthened and should have been strengthened and you want to do different and and try to do that and follow that direction. Uh, but it's always important, I think, to engage with everyone that is involved that will be affected by the by the decision. And having an objective, you know, for, for me, as I told you at the beginning, for me, the objective has been to open up as much as I could the PPRG because I want to keep this connection going with Europe, with the US, uh, with South Africa. And, and these are my main objectives, as well as maintaining the high standards that we've always had uh, in the past. Um, and that is probably the scariest part, you know, having to maintain that high standards and making sure that everything uh, stays uh, at the same level. Um, because the no, bar has think... been set very, very so high. high. <laughs> very, yes, very of high. Course. So, uh... Of course. No, but I think that, you know, you what I take particularly also, you know, for myself, but also in general within the podcast, what we can take out of it there are two elements that really strike me you know as these little golden nuggets that I take out of this part of our conversation one was the very beginning when we you know were reflecting to that opening panel uh on the conference when you mentioned focus on people and the atmosphere rather than this perfectionist right because I'll be very honest with you I probably I couldn't maintain my nerves I probably would I, I don't think I would scream, but you, you could feel would, you would. You on my on my face, you would see that you know that I'm not happy and stressed and so on. But I think that this is such a wonderful thing that you mean. Just focus on the bigger picture of the atmosphere and the people that are there with you. And I think that really carries through the leadership that that you're sharing with us. Focus on on the people, build the bridge, listen, and get everyone involved. And I think from my side as an observer, uh, maybe a comment, and I wonder whether you can comment on that, is I think that is also part that comes to my mind is just also just allow yourself to be yourself. 
just bring bring whoever you are. Like the reason why you've been given that role, um, what you earned that role, right, is because someone seen the potential and the credibility that you are to fulfill specific specific role. And each one of us is uh, unique and 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 have our own style. So also, I guess trusting into that. Um, rather than maybe trying to fill shoes and sort of almost, you know, imitate someone else that you might think you're supposed to be in that role. Is that, what would you think about that? Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, because at the end, uh, if you have to make a mistake, it's better if you um, make it yourself or who mm. you are rather than, you know, wanting to just replicate um, other people. So. Yeah. That is definitely important to be yourself and, and you know, and, and be um, what you believe in. And yeah. um, and I think that that is very important. And you said as well, you know, you mentioned at the beginning uh, something about uh, being given this role, which is for me has been important, you know, the, the recognition. Um, and you need to be lucky to find people that recognize your value and that give you space. And I think, you know, on that I was fortunate in Nottingham. Um, this was not my my first leadership role within the university because I've had uh, a few important roles uh, before, but were limited within the university, like leading the uh, research cluster, uh, which is a university cluster of interdisciplinary research. And I also led the equality committee, as you mentioned uh, before. And I have to just make a little note, I'm no longer the chair of the equality committee. I was, but I'm no longer uh, the chair. I, I helped fund, uh, I, I helped uh, create the committee, but I'm no longer leading it. Um, and I think, that, you know, throughout all this process, what has been important is the possibility to be given the space to do that. Mm. So I remember when I went to my former head of school and said, we don't have an equality committee. We need an equality committee. And I didn't, f and I found an open door. I, so, you know, if you see that something in, is needed, put yourself forward for it. You yeah, know, identify yeah. a need, put yourself forward for that need. But then also, it's not done by, just by yourself. You need to be lucky to find someone who recognizes uh, the value of what you are saying and your idea. And I was lucky at the time because I had a great head of school who recognized that we needed to change things. We needed to have an equality committee. And, and so that it started. And my leadership journey started there more than within with the PPRG. With the PPRG, I'm continuing, yeah, it's um, an if step. anything. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think that, you know, the, the closing uh, comment here that I would want to make is undoubtedly I recognize and, and, and agree with uh, what you're mentioning. In all our career path, a bit of luck is always necessary and coming across 
the good people and people that give you space and, and, and give you an opportunity. But the element that I also wanted to underline, because it's not just luck, and we tend to also, I think, maybe a little bit as women talk often a bit maybe too much about luck, but I think it's also a lot of hard work and it's also the courage. It's the courage to actually go somewhere and say, hey, I have this idea or I would want to do that. Um, you know, give me a space to kind of try to give it a go, right? So I think that that element is also because it takes a lot, I think, um, work and courage to say, you know, and I think, you know, something like equality at the university setting, um, we should be doing something like that. I imagine that there is also a fair bit great um, resistance, you know, not only the positivity and people that kind of support you, but there always will be some resistance and it's, and it's always a bit of hard work included in all of it. So... No, thank you very much for this comment, uh, Marta, because yes, absolutely. You know, it's a trademark of women to say luck and no courage. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, yes, absolutely. But but what I meant is, um, is also that, you know, once you are a leader, you need to recognize how to give opportunities to others. To others. And this, I hope, is something that I will do with my leadership. And that's why I want to create spaces for early career researcher to be seen, um, to be heard, because that's, that's what is necessary. It's necessary to create a space. And then, uh, um, you know, the element of courage, the resistance. Oh, yes, of course, you can imagine how much resistance we are already. <laughs> we are already equal. You are yeah, yeah, of course. We don't need anything, you know. We don't need to do anything. That that is uh, something that you will encounter always, all the time in every community. I think absolutely, yeah? there will yeah. always be a challenging. Uh, one of my really great friends always says, "You just need to uh, find alliance of willing." That's what you just need to do. Yeah, just find alliance of willing. Well, Anna, it was absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for spending time with me and and sharing uh, not only your research uh, expertise and work, but also, you know, how you moved uh, through all these different stages of your career as uh, as someone that uh, leads uh, in many of our eyes, you know, our generation of uh, of academics and um, opens the doors to collaboration. We are very grateful for that. It was a pleasure to have you. Uh, thank you, Anna. Thank um, you very much, Marta. It was a, a real pre- pleasure to be here with you and to talk with you today. Thank you. Thanks. Thank uh, you. This was Bestec, the public procurement podcast. This was Bestec, the public procurement podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestechpodcast.com. 